I haven't had a politician on the podcast before. I tend to steer more towards business and finance to bring you stories about the solutions and the innovations that are going to define the next century. But of course, any strong economy is backed by strong laws and institutions. Politics is powerful. And my guest today, well, she isn't your run-of-the-mill politician. Zali Stegel is the federal member for Warringa. She's independent, so she's not beholden to any party. And she won her seat in a major upset last year as she took down ex-Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Zali is a lawyer, but before that she was in fact an Olympic skier. In Nagano, she won a bronze medal, Australia's first individual Winter Olympic medal. She's clearly no stranger to winning, but she may still have her biggest challenge ahead of her yet. You see, Zali is taking a new bill to Parliament. It's called the Climate Change Bill. We all know how divisive this topic has been in our Parliament over the last decade, but for Zali... It may be her independence that will help her do what so many have struggled to accomplish before her. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the new economy, sustainable business, and how we can all have an impact through making our voices heard. This conversation was originally organised as part of the RIA Conference. That's the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia. But, like so many other events, it was postponed in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. Zali talked a little about how her community is handling the coronavirus, as well as how frustrated she is by the conduct of some commentators. We talked about the pressing need to address climate change after a lost decade of political inaction, and she explained that this issue has increasing support from members on both sides of the parliament, from business, landholders and greenies alike. This is about cleaning up our environment, but it's also about catching up across innovation, renewable power, productivity, and efficiency, things that are already proving to define this new decade. So let's dive in. All the show notes are on my website at johntreadgold.com. And if you want to continue the conversation, jump onto Twitter or the Facebook page. All right, here's my conversation with Zali Stegel. Here we go. Zali Stegel, great to have some time with you today. I'm sure you're very busy. It's uh, unfortunate that we couldn't catch up at the RIA conference, which was scheduled for this week. It was cancelled like so many other events have been. So thank you for giving me some time nonetheless. Oh, my pleasure. Good stuff. Well, look, as I said, uncertain times and mainly because of this crisis, the, the coronavirus crisis, which is is really unprecedented. So every group that's trying to deal with it, you know, really has nothing to base their work off. Now, you are in Parliament, but you're also a parent, you're active in your community. So maybe we could just, you know, get a feel for how you're seeing it all in your suburb of Manly and, and how are the anxiety levels over there? Look, the level of anxiety, I think there's concern, definitely concern, especially for the more vulnerable in our community, you know, elderly that are at risk of isolation, but also the health concern in their respect. From a community point of view, Warringah has quite a lot of small businesses, especially around tourism and hospitality. They've already taken a big hit over summer with air pollution and bushfires. Now with air travel, you know, 
completely down. Tourism is gone. We have a lot of businesses that are really worried and doing it tough. So I am, you know, liaising with the government about their stimulus package and really looking at making sure that there is the appropriate focus on small businesses, uh, which makes up a huge part of the workforce here in Moringa. That's it. There aren't many industries that aren't impacted. Everybody really is. And taking that time, people have got some pretty creative methods. We've got a lot of people working from home that haven't done it before. And as you said, we've got a lot of businesses that are doing it tough. But uh, any advice for people that are sitting at home and, and feeling a little bit kind of lost about how to reframe this whole situation? It's challenging and it's interesting that we're now using unprecedented in this way when we've already done it through the bushfires. I hate to think that 2020 is that beginning of a decade of, you know, events that are on a much larger scale and, and impacts are really something that is changing and it, it is where it all becomes relevant from, you know, the, my, my concern over climate impacts to come but also this kind of global impact of a disease like coronavirus. So it's highlighting how interconnected we all are but also maybe opportunities that we do have that ability for a lot of professions to work from home and so that brings some advantage in itself that when we reset after this crisis it will be interesting to think about do we go back to business as usual or do we realize that we've learned to do things better more economically more efficiently so for people that have the ability to work from home it's you know being able to be more connected and using your network through electronic media and means we will have all learned a lot you know I've done a lot of conferences over the phone in the last few days and I think we're or realising how much modern media and technology makes a lot of things available, which is really interesting in the context of decarbonising, you know, not so much traffic and congestion. So, look, there's a lot of concerns. There's a lot of questions from the community. And for us, the focus is really is on helping all the more vulnerable. But I think there is opportunity for all those that are now self-isolating or working from home. There is that opportunity to inform yourself, take the time to look at a few things. Yeah, it's really interesting what you said there about, you know, using the terminology like unprecedented. I think language is so important and obviously in a crisis, communication um, being really accurate and timely is vital. But there's just something that I've sort of come across uh, in the last few days, you know, being so close to the climate change debate for so long and, and being focused on language. You know, I've heard sort of conservative commentators trotting out the old climate change lines, but using it to discredit measures to protect against coronavirus. And I don't really know what to think about it. It seems, I wanted to bring it up with you. I couldn't quite, you know, work out how to, to word it. But then I was researching for this interview. I found a quote from Alan Jones on 2GB and he said, we now seem to be facing the health version of global warming, exaggeration in almost everything. And it just struck me as, as bizarre and, and kind of foolish in that, People, sure, you know, people, his listeners, may be old enough and rich enough to escape climate impacts, but they're the most vulnerable to this virus. So I'm not sure if it's a lack of imagination or if it's, you know, they're just uh, listening to, the, to different experts than you and I, but how do you see that? Yeah, look, I think it was incredibly irresponsible and wrong of him to make those comments. Am I surprised? Sadly, probably not. Maybe it goes to the very nature that he has an inability to accept science and actual accept proper precautions 
and proper, you know, forward-facing policies. The irony here is at a point in life where he is in the most vulnerable group. And so I think he should be heeding these warnings carefully. And I do think he has a duty in respect to his listeners to not mislead them and leave them not to take appropriate precautions. But it is interesting that he's taking a similar line with the virus as with his line in relation to the science of climate change, which is completely at odds with the government, government of Australia, but also government of every government around the world. So maybe this highlights just how out on the limb he actually is in his views on both the coronavirus and climate change. But look, I think at the end of the day, what it's highlighted and what I've seen is, you know, the government is prepared to take significant steps and measures in relation to believing the science and acting on an immediate, clear and present risk. I'm hoping that this will translate into a better willingness to accept the clear identified risks that we have when it comes to climate as well and the need for action. We can see through this virus how any delay in taking appropriate action has really dire consequences. So any any delay in isolation or public information about, you know, hygiene measures, hand washing, physical distancing has a dramatic impact on the spread of the virus. So you can see how preemptive moves are really valuable. And I can only say that it's the same with every risk and threat that we face. And I will certainly be continuing to argue the case that we'll need to do the same on climate. What we've also seen is the economic impact and the impact on jobs. You know, Australia, whilst we are an island, we are not immune to what happens in the rest of the world. We are part of the global market and it will impact us. So I think, again, it shows that need to make sure our economy and our jobs are resilient to the risks of the future. We're seeing already with the virus that we're having to take very reactive measures. We, we're not ready in advance. We don't have scenarios worked out. And I think that's something we will need to look at for the future. Like with the bushfires where we need, we're having a Royal Commission and looking at you know, our response, I think we need to be much better prepared for large-scale emergency crises for the future. Definitely. I think that that's been a real realisation of, of preparing. And, and the word that's used a lot with climate change is resilience. And, and that's obviously, you know, something that we're all realising, preparedness, resilience and flexibility, that everything won't always trundle along and have the successes that we've, we've been really lucky to have in Australia in the last 20 years. And look, these are all things that we were hoping to hear from you at the RIA conference. And so that's the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, a meeting of minds of all the, the most progressive finance people, impact investors, sustainable investors, social enterprise. But you're an independent politician from Moringa. You're not a career politician, but you took down an ex-prime minister to win Moringa. So um, maybe just you could just give us a rundown of, of, you know, what were you going to present at the conference to, to this group that might not be your um, your standard sort of audience. Yeah, look, when I uh, won the election last year in Warringah, it's quite obvious the centre, centre-right maybe of the electorate, you know, of the sort of political spectrum doesn't feel represented by the major parties, that the issue of climate policy has really been 
uh, weaponized in the last 10 years in Australia. It's been very divisive. There's been a lot of focus on point scoring between the major parties. And I think that's really wrong because climate policy at the end of the day goes to our inherent, the inherent safety of Australia into the future. Now, I don't see the major parties arguing about defence. And so we really should not be arguing about climate impact. So there, there's something really ideologically wrong with where it's gone. And I think that's where, as an independent, I am trying to broker the sensible pathway, something that is less divisive and trying to actually get everyone on board. So I looked to other countries and the UK passed the Climate Change Act in 2008 very successfully. It has had bipartisan support. It has survived their Brexit years. So you have to think fairly robust legislation and Australia needs to get to that point. So the climate change bill that I will be presenting is very much based on the UK legislation. It sets into law our commitment under the Paris Agreement. We have committed to keeping global warming to as close to 1.5 degrees and under 2 degrees as possible. That requires on all the science, requires us to be at a net zero by no longer later than 2050. So we should lock that into legislation so that we have that long-term goal and commitment. You then, under the bill, have five-year emission reduction budget periods to enable us to have a uh, very clear pathway, roadmap to how we get to that net zero, that it goes beyond electoral cycles. So at the moment, major parties come out with their policies every three years for an election cycle. That does not provide stability and certainty to the private sector, especially your listeners who are very focused on making large investments and they need to know well into the future the direction of travel of policy for a country. So looking at really putting that framework in place to enable that to be there and establishing an independent expert-based commission that will review and assess the risks in Australia across all the sectors and then make recommendations. But it is up to the government of the day and the minister to put in place emission reduction plans and planning in terms of addressing the risks that have been identified. So what the Commission will do is provide accountability to the Australian people independent of government. Now, I know there's been sort of concerns raised by coalition members, but this is no more, no less than having the High Court or the Reserve Bank, who are non-elected independent bodies providing a very essential service and element to keeping Australia working well. So I think the Commission is an important part of making sure we're not bound by sort of political game playing when it comes to letting Australia know how their sort of future is tracking. And so they're the key elements of the bill. And it's been very interesting having those discussions with both, you know, the opposition and the coalition about where their concerns are. And look, my background is as a barrister. So I used to do a lot of mediation and you have very intransigent parties that are really locked into their position that have to come to the table with a sense of, 
where is our common ground? What do we agree on? Where can we go from there? What can we build? And so that's very much what I've been trying to do with both sides of politics. Yeah. Look, thanks for breaking all of that down. You know, a really powerful opportunity there and, and lots to unpack with that. My first question that sort of sprung to mind was, you're just an independent one person. How could you sort of have that large influence when the parties can control the vote of such big groups? But as you were speaking, I sort of shifted that to think, hang on, maybe an independent's the only one that can because they don't have that backing. Is that, is that sort of what you're feeling? Exactly. Because I'm not in a party, I'm not bound by the party view. It's very difficult within a party to come out with a different view or different policy or proposal without appearing to be critical of your main team. Again, I think it's because I'm outside the tent that I'm able to put forward a different solution, a different approach, and that can then be really assessed on its merits. And that's what I've been really focusing on doing with MPs in my meetings, especially where there is such strong community support. So over 80% of Australians want to see a net zero commitment and support stronger actions and better policy on climate change. Now, I've been pushing for MPs to really support a free vote, so a conscience vote where instead of voting on party lines, they actually reflect the views of their electorates because we know that the coalition is a broad church and there are a lot of different views, but I think each vote and each voice counts and a free vote is how we can actually give due respect for each vote. Yeah, now this line net zero by 2050, it's become almost a buzzword. You're hearing it in all over the place, different countries, different angles. It's, it's really a goal. It seems to me reminiscent of the SDGs or something like that, a goal that we can all reach to. Can we break it down a little bit? I mean, to me, 2050 sounds like a long time away, far away, and also net zero. That makes me think straight away about offsets. So I'm guessing offsets are included in net zero. Could you you sort of break that down and give us a bit more detail on how it works? Yeah, of course, net zero means I I want us to start thinking of our emissions as balancing a budget. There are, of course, certain sectors that are never going to be, that are very difficult to reduce their emissions and are always going to be emission-based sectors. But we have other sectors where we have opportunities with carbon sequestration and sinks and other technologies to go in the other direction. And so what we need by having a framework legislation is that everyone is ultimately accountable and no one sector can really increase its emissions without accountability. Because at the moment, that's what we have. We have a lot of loopholes in our legislation and we have certain high emitting sectors like mining where they are frequently exceeding their allocations and just being allowed to do that without any accountability. To me, that is not balancing the book. And so that's where when the Prime Minister talks about a policy like his roadmap that he's going to do to announce on technology, uh, I assume there is going to be a transport roadmap announced, an electrification of transport roadmap announced because in the government's own goal of 26% by 2030, it requires a certain amount of reduction in the transport sector, but they haven't actually announced any policy to achieve that. So these are announcements due to come, but if they're not ultimately balanced against other sectors that are increasing their emissions, then the Australian public can't have 
any confidence that gains are actually being made. And there's a lot of uh, obfuscation um, going on when you look at, you know, the whole argument about the Kyoto carryover credits, for example. Again, our true emission reduction without that is only about 14% by 2030, assuming all of those other sectors deliver the way that's anticipated, even though we don't know the plan. So it's really unproductive and it really misses the point. When we're talking about needing to reduce emissions, this isn't like a, an accounting game. It's a safety reality. We actually just need to do it. So from my point of view, that's why we need the net zero goal. We need to know, you know, the goal has to be that we're balancing that budget. And then how do we get there? Because at the moment, we're heavily in the red. And if it is a goal, and I understand that that's the bill is a framework, so it doesn't define policy, it sets a goal, 2050, you know, 30 years away. But as you said, we've got this disingenuous claiming that we're, we're on track to Paris commitments with but claiming carryover credit. So that's a bit of an accounting fudge. But if we have a, a framework, even if it runs to 2050 with, with five-year goalposts to, to move through, is there not the potential that the same kind of accounting fraud can, can be brought in to make it look like, you know, we're achieving the, the step-by-step? Well, I have made provisions that carryovers can't be counted. So, no, I've specifically ruled that out. Look, yes, there is flexibility because we have to be aware that certain sectors might hit roadblocks uh, or certain worldwide events impact. But unless you're locked into the end destination, the process is simply going to be impacted. If we have a roadmap for technology to reduce emissions with no goal inside, it will simply proceed along aimlessly. It needs to be tied to a goal. There's no doubt about it. But look, it's, it's an interesting one in terms of I haven't been prescriptive on technology on purpose. So the, the legislation in the, U, in the UK has been extremely efficient in helping all sectors decarbonise. And in Australia, we've been so focused on the energy discussion, which of course it is the easiest one to decarbonise and it then leads on to electrification of transport. But we have got a lot of other sectors that need to be looked at and better assessed. So when it comes to construction and industry, um, and one of the things that the Climate Change Bill allows for is at any one time there is up to three budget periods being planned for. So that's three five-year plans, which means from an industry to industry point of view, you can have some visibility and certainty and that can assist when it comes to making large capital investment into R&D. And now the deadline of 2050, where did that come from? Was that, you know, I've heard it spoken in lots of different groups all around the world. Was that something particular to this bill or is that a broader sort of target date? Well, no, that came out, look, initially the Paris Agreement was, you know, a commitment to keep global warming under two degrees and closest to 1.5 as possible. Since then, the IPCC has come out with a confirmation that it needs to be no later than 2050. I know the government is being a bit, you know, playing with words in terms of what the Paris Agreement originally points out that it is uh, in the second half of the century, but the ultimate goal is keeping temperatures below two degrees and as close to 1.5. Now, the science has all come out to say for any chance of that happening, it has to be no later than 2050. Now, I think 70 or 80 countries have committed to that. 
all states in Australia are committed to that in legislation or policy. Uh, most large companies are committed to that. Some of our biggest emitters are committed to that. You know, we've had announcements from Rio Tinto and BHP. So, again, I think you know, the government really needs to stop playing political games with our future and actually commit to what is required to be consistent with that commitment under the Paris Agreement. Okay, good stuff. It's been, look, it's been great to try and unpack some of this stuff because I think everybody's heard about the bill and, and, and great to get an explanation from yourself. And then getting a little bit practical, I know that the bill doesn't include the specific policy, but there's obviously hopes that in kind of the economic efficiency model that if you set the aim, set the northern star, then we can drive towards it. So if the bill made it through parliament and, you know, we have five, 10-year checkpoints along the way for, you know, my more business-focused, investment-focused audience, what do you think could be some of the opportunities and the shifts that could happen in the Australian marketplace? I think it would just give that much better confidence. Look, the bill isn't prescriptive on technology, but what it does have is guiding principles. So in enacting and making those five-year plans, the guiding principles requires the minister to look at fiscal management. It has to be fiscally well-managed, the plan. So we know that cost of early action is much less than cost of later action. We need generational equity so that it's not later generations paying the bill for this. We need regional equity. So we need to make sure regions aren't left paying for the cost of our transition. So employment and employment opportunities have to be at the forefront of decisions. Uh, food security, water, land management, these are all things that need to be considered. So it's trying to, whilst not being prescriptive on the minister on exactly what policy has to be, it is saying what the guidelines of good policy in this regard should be. And I think that's really important so that vested interest doesn't hijack proper action. In terms of where it goes, look, there's a lot of different players have different views. I'm talking to a lot of sort of investment groups that are more focused in uh, land management and, and sustainability around our agricultural practices, valuing land use and land restoration more. So again, letting farmers and regional communities uh, potentially uh, being paid for the role they play as carbon sinks uh, and carbon uh, sequestration. Now, we know the government's emission reduction fund isn't working. Uh, the reverse auction system is not delivering any results. So clearly a different approach needs to be taken. But also, you know, there needs to be incentive for big emitters to change, either an incentive or a stick. There has to be something in that sense. But also, we have one of the largest in uptake of, of um, renewable uh, solar PV and, and wind in the world. We need to keep that going, give that security uh, and make sure that that's there. There's so many things we should be doing. You know, when I look at transport, we simply don't have any incentives in place to increase our percentage of electric vehicles. We don't have a local car manufacturer. Ironically, we are starting to have some electric vehicles being produced in Australia, which is really interesting development from where our car industry has gone. So, look, I wouldn't want to be specific about the how. I know BCA have expressed some views about what they would like to see but for me I think that's where we have we've gotten lost in the debate because everyone has a different idea on how and so then we forget to agree on where we need to go and that we actually need to go there so my view is 
a little bit like you set a goal that you want to run a marathon, let's lock in that goal. Then you, let's all agree that we need a training program. Now, some people might do slightly different training programs than others, but you still need to have a training program to achieve the goal. So I'm trying to create step one so that we can depoliticize this a little bit and actually become more productive. You've got support from the Greens and from the, the B Corp cohort. You've got Tim Flannery as an advisor. All the progressive talking heads are supporting you, which is probably to be expected. But are there any unexpected groups offering their support? I wouldn't say anyone is unexpected. I think anyone that is future-focused and looking at both environmental incomes and economic outcomes, there is no doubt when you, you, know, you read someone like Ross Garneau's latest book in terms of where our economic opportunities are for Australia in the future, we need to get ahead of the curve. Definitely, definitely. And I think just in those very simple terms, then that does really capture everybody, right? And that's what you'd hope the government was driving towards. And that you'd hope that that's what energy providers are driving towards. It's efficiency, it's low price, and it's innovation in the future. So yeah, I think, I think the goal is really important. I think some people say that 2050 is not soon enough. But I think the fact that there are these checkpoints along the way that it's sort of, in the end, we will have a 2030 and a 2035 and a 2040 target and goal. Exactly. And for all those that are concerned that 2050 is not soon enough, the problem is we need to learn to walk before we can run. And at the moment, we have a lot of dysfunction when it comes to this policy area. So I agree that if we can get there sooner, that is great. And that should be aimed for. And we need mechanisms in place to be able to accelerate our transition. But at the moment, we don't, we have lots of different sort of attempts that are not linked together we don't have any overall budgeting so what the bill provides is an ability to gradually put the foot on the accelerator and gradually accelerate but it doesn't allow for going into reverse <laughs> very good oh, that's a good analogy and now on these podcasts i do like to dig into my guests background and kind of try to understand how they got to where they are now we don't have much time left today but one thing we haven't talked about is your history as an olympian and i've not yet had an olympian on the podcast hopefully there'll be another opportunity but you know you've had such an interesting background you you grew up in manly and you're now back there and representing your community you know you won a silver medal in japan i believe it was australia's first winter medal in an individual event very exciting so I was going to say, it was a bronze medal, not a silver medal. Oh, bronze. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Bronze is, is commendable. I did get gold the following year. So you did? Right. Oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I can only imagine the hard work that it would have taken. Yeah, look, uh, as a kid, I was always a fairly um, determined, I guess, highly competitive and determined. And again, when I was 13, I just decided I'd really like to make it to the Olympic Games for Australia. Now, I didn't stop and think that Winter Olympics from Australia was possibly difficult or what would it take or how hard would it be or how realistic was my goal. I just set the goal. And then that becomes a real driving force to really hold your determination because you go through tough times as athletes. There, it's not every day is standing on top of the podium. There are a lot of days where you eat a lot of humble pie and you, you lose and it's really tough and you have to go back and really question your approach, your training, your talent, you know, everything about your performance. So, but one thing you learn to do is be very self-critical and then move on because you can't change your result. Once a race is done, it's done and you can only face to the future. So that really is my 
philosophy of life, I guess, in that you can't undo the past. You can't change what's happened, but you can learn your lesson and then focus on the future. So for me, even as a lawyer and as a barrister, focusing on litigation was always about not trying to, you know, there's no point I'm being bitter or recriminate about the past. You have to focus on the future and find solutions. So I do tend to sort of take that philosophy, you know, in my professional life and my personal life. And that's what motivates me, I guess, as an MP. Mm, I think that's an interesting comparison there about setting that goal and working towards it. You know, for you, when you were young, you said, I want to win an Olympic medal and very tenacious to drive towards. And I imagine, you know, that's what it takes, that it's a, a pretty unique sense of sort of drive. Obviously, trying to set that goal towards 2050, drive towards it. But then you did mention, you know, if you lose that, that race, you have to move on. You're obviously confident about this bill getting through, but we've had 10 years of this issue causing such dislocation to our entire political spectrum and really, you know, they're calling it the lost decade. You know, do you feel that you have a special skill set that can get it through when so many others have, I don't want to say failed, but struggled and it's caused so much division? Is there anything particular that you think you're bringing to it? Oh, look, (laughs) Um, I I certainly bring uh, determination and resilience. (laughs) So, This is not something that's going to go away. It's not something I will quit. It's not something anyone can quit, really, because it is our long-term future and safety that's at stake. So we need to find solutions. From my point of view, that's your baseline. Um, In terms of the bill, the bill has already been very successful in really pushing the dialogue forward in terms of the government needing a net zero by 2050 um, focus. We have Glasgow coming up in November where we're assuming it goes ahead with the current environment but uh, you know I think past last year's election campaign the coalition would have been quite happy not to talk about anything to do with climate change and I think Labor were probably holding off from having to be pinned down on anything either so I see, you know, from the crossbench, it's been really important for us to make sure that it doesn't slip off the agenda. There has to be accountability on this and there has to be effective policy. So it is so important that we keep talking about it. We know what a solution can look like uh, rather than thinking the problem is so big that it's all too hard. Very good, very good. That sounds solid. And I think I think that's an interesting one that, that both sides of both of our major parties sort of managed to wriggle out of the debate. And I think that this bill seems like a unique sort of statement and it's a matter of, you know, putting your hand up and saying yay or nay. And those that say nay will be held accountable and it'll be a matter of, you know, how can you say no to this? It's clearly the future and clearly for the good of Australia. So, yeah, it might just be that unique approach and unique exposure that we need to say, this is a no-brainer, this is what we need to go forward, you know, let's wash off the last decade and uh, and let's get started. Yeah, look, also, you know, I'm only one person, I'm an independent, I, you know, <laughs> there's only so much, um, but I have a huge support from the community and I have community from all over Australia contacting us who really get behind this. And that's why we've got the website, which is climateactnow.com.au, to really be a point of call for people who want to show their support and put pressure on their MPs. If there's one thing I've learned is that MPs really care about their jobs and they care about being re-elected in two years' time. So keeping that in mind, every vote counts and people need to be engaged on the issue and the, the website is a vehicle by which they can be engaged. 
Very good. All right. Well, look, we're running out of time, but uh, as, as usual, I like to ask my guests for a book recommendation at the end. You're obviously, uh, you know, have dived deep into these issues. So if there are any, are there any books or, or documentaries that you think people would find interesting or even just a novel that's on your side table? I think we all need a few of those at the moment. A good new one to read at the moment would be Christiana Figueroa's uh, The Future We Choose. I mean, I, I had lunch with her last week and, you know, she's an amazingly passionate, resourceful, pragmatic person who's achieved so much. And I think there's a lot that we can take out of that. Okay. Is she Australian? What's her background? Uh, no, she's from that. She was the chief uh, negotiator for the UN uh, for the Paris Agreement. Oh, incredible. All right. Very good. I'll have to dig that one up for sure. I've got plenty of time to do reading at the moment because uh, we're all stuck at home. But look, thank you very much. Um, I'm sure you're still busy nonetheless. And the bill, now that was delayed, I believe. Do you have any updates on, on when that's going to hit Parliament? Yeah, look, clearly because of the crisis, I uh, you know made a decision early in the week. But in any event, we're not going to have a proper sitting week next week. It's only going to be a sitting week to deal with the emergency measures relating to the uh, economic stimulus. So it's a bit up in the air when our next sitting week will be. I will introduce it at the earliest opportunity once we're past the crisis of the coronavirus. Okay, good stuff. And, and people have got plenty of time to, uh, to do some research and dig into the bill and, and think about what it all means. So, look, thank you, Zali. Yeah, really appreciate hearing it from yourself and, and giving us that time. So all the best with it. Okay, thank you very much.